Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. Before we get into this episode of Small Doses Podcast, y'all thought I was running for president, didn't you? Ah, 52 figure. Just Josh and yeah. But you're going to love what I did do. An unapologetically political comedy documentary called In Amanda We Trust. And you're going to want to see it. So make sure you go to inamandawetrust.com. Put your name in the email so that when it drops on August 18th, you don't even got to go nowhere to get it. It's coming to you. All right. It's coming to you. I'm very excited about this. I got to go to D.C., have some dope conversations. I got to look into the aspects, the possibilities, the perhaps and such of running for office. And I documented all of it for you, the people. Why? Because you told me to run. So make sure you go to inamandawetrust.com and get down with the get down because we're about to be up, up, up. All right. Now we're about to get into this next episode with somebody who actually is running for president. And, you know, it was really dope that we got to do this interview. And I really got to see some insight into what I really feel like is most important, which is we need public servants. We need public servants, not politicians. And I hope that with this interview and also with In Amanda We Trust, we start to really excite y'all about how you can be involved in civics, not just as uh, citizens, but also as leaders, because that's the next move that we're going to need to make sure that these folks don't take over and turn this country all the way to hell like they want to. They driving. Fast track. It's going down. All right. We're going to get into this next episode with Marianne Williamson. And don't forget that the visuals premiere on YouTube at Amanda Seals TV every Thursday, 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern. Hope to see you there in the chat, chit-chatting with me about what she's saying right here. All right. Let's head on into it. Marianne, take it away. So funky. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of Small Doses Podcast. I'm giving you full Shirley Chisholm today. And that is in honor of the fact that today's episode is specifically related to the presidency. Which I think for a lot of people is this kind of like outwardly ethereal position that, you know, exists and that we know who the president is. But for a lot of folks, particularly in the last few years, since we were forced to really become way more civically inclined as we watched the actual president in 2016 become like an actual evil person, it forced a lot of us to say, oh, wait, we actually need to be involved in this. We actually need to know more about this process. And we actually need to know more about these people who are wanting to be in this position. And I think a lot of us put that off on everybody else for a long time. We said, we're going to get somebody else to do it. They're going to vote. They're going to handle it. They're going to do it. Well, them days are done. And so we need to be more informed ourselves. And in that, we also understand that we need to open our eyes to the fact that there are other people for the position than just the same names that we see all the time that are, you know, shuffled out in front of us. I know a lot of people were not happy when they heard that President Biden was running again because they was like, God damn, this man is old as Methuselah. How is he going to do this again? And then other people were also not happy when they felt like the push has already been that he has no contenders. He has no competition. 
Well, one of those people who's also not happy about that is somebody who is running to be a contender in the presidency, and that is Marianne Williamson, who we have the joy of speaking to today. Thank you so much for giving us your time. And I know that my audience is definitely very eager to hear not just your thoughts on policy, but your ideology on life. Well, thank you very much for having me. I'm grateful. I think that a political campaign is a long job interview. And as you said, people are aware that the presidency is very important and very relevant to our lives, whether we realize it or not. And I think that when particularly you are choosing a presidential candidate, we have a right. It's very realistic to be as concerned with who they are as with what their plans are. So I'm grateful to have the opportunity to reveal. Ask away. I mean, I guess my first question is when you were growing up, what did the president mean to you? Well, you know, John F. Kennedy was killed when I was 11 years old. So that's just old enough to have a real sense of the trauma of that moment. Plus, I was raised in a progressive, liberal, democratic home where things like this were discussed a lot. Then I was 16 years old when Bobby Kennedy and Martin Luther King were killed. And then when I went to college, it started when I was in high school and then in college, the anti-war movement. So I was very much a child of my generation. So we were aware of the death of JFK. We were aware of all the drama in Chicago. We were aware of Nixon winning. We were aware of what happened with Johnson, all of that. So I grew up at a time when it was central to our sense of what was important. Absolutely. Did you aspire to that? I know when I was in third grade, my third grade teacher, Ms. Gill, asked what we wanted to be. And other people were like, I want to be a dog. I want to be a nurse. And I was like, I want to be the first black female president of the United States of America. By the way, she sent a note home to my mother that said, Amanda is overconfident and needs to pursue more realistic goals. <laughs> I was in Florida. There's a lot to no, that one. No surprise there. We were in Florida. <laughs> um, but, you know, for what it's worth, like people will tell me all the time, Amanda, you need to run for president, which I would never do. So. I'm curious, you know, at that age, you're seeing all of this drama. You have lived through these assassinations. You have lived through, you know, corruption on such an incredible level that the person, you know, was impeached and removed from office. What then at this point in your life said, okay, I can approach this? What made running for president approachable to you? That didn't happen until much later. When I was a younger woman, I wasn't thinking about running for political office at all. Now, remember, I was part of a generation where we read Ram Dass and Alan Watts in the morning and went to anti-war rallies in the afternoon. So there wasn't this division at that time between your personal works. You know, the counterculture at that time was spiritual, sexual, cultural, musical, artistic and political. It was all one big countercultural revolution. I ended up feeling that the place where I belonged had to do with the spiritual revolution that was very much going on at that time. And then from that became very involved in nonprofit work, private charitable organizations. But then what started happening in my life about 20 years ago was that I began to recognize problems that people were having that no amount of private charity could fix. 
because those problems were emerging from basic public policy positions. And I realized that no amount of private charity could compensate for a basic lack of social justice. So I realized, yeah, I can start nonprofits and I can help people endure the crises of their time. But if the system is such that they still can't get health care and they still can't pay for their kids to go to college and they're still carrying all these college loan debts, all you're ever going to be able to do is help people endure what is essentially an unjust system. And I began to realize, no, we have to call the system itself on its essential lack of justice. And I wanted to use my voice to speak to the chaos in the system, not just the chaos in one individual's life. Okay, I'm going to be very blunt right now. There's a certain level, I think, of privilege that makes someone say, I recognize that the system is trash, so you know what? I'm about to run for president. <laughs> like, that's a large leap. And so that's what I, from the outside, would assign it to. What do you feel it was within you that said... Because your answer just now is very practical and I can see the logic in it. But there's a whole other emotional and mental move and shift that has to happen to say, I'm going to climb this mountain. So I'm curious to just hear from you, like, what was it that made you say, I can do this and I'm going to do this and I'm going to be able to take this on? You mentioned Shirley Chisholm earlier. Yep. And everybody said, who the hell are you to run for president? Mm-hmm. I think they always say that to any woman. You're an, being an uppity woman to say you could do this. I think Shirley was also somebody, though, who had a history of... Oh, absolutely. Political activist. Well, she was a congresswoman. Well, and Correct. I've been a political activist. I wrote my first book. I didn't just... The way you just described it was all of a sudden I woke up one day almost like, I'm going to run for president. That's not what happened here at all. And that's that, not the That's story. what I want to know. <laughs> yeah, that's not what happened. And that's not the story okay. I described. I wrote my first book. You're about, pretty snippy. Did you know that? <laughs> she said, that's not the story I described. That yeah, is I'm what like you described. I'm like I you that way. I want to hear the process yeah, like you that of way. how you go from there's a problem to saying I'm going to no. run for office because right. we all know that is a huge undertaking. What I'm saying is that was not the trajectory. I didn't just wake up one day and say I'm running for president. In 1998, I wrote a book called Healing the Soul of America. And that was my third book. And I was interested in taking all these spiritual perspectives that I had been writing about and talking about and interested in where they interfaced with politics. And in order to do that, I took a deeper dive into American history. I mean, I, you know, as a kid, I took classes in American history. I had a cursory progressive knowledge. But when I took that deeper dive, I saw things and realized things at a much deeper level. So in 1998, I wrote a book about mm -hmm. the corporatocracy, about reparations, about racial injustice, about Martin Luther King, about Gandhi. So I wrote that book in 1998. Mm -hmm. And much of my political activism, as well as my work spiritually, emerged from that conversation. That was in 1998. But mm -hmm. then once again, I began to realize not overnight but over the years. I'm year. not saying it's overnight, ma'am. Like, no, like Cori Bush, for instance. When Cori Bush was on the podcast, Cori Bush, great legislator who is a part of the squad, she yeah. said that she had never considered running for president. She's an organizer. She was like, I'm on the ground. I'm with the people. Like, this is not a thing I'm going to do. People came to her and said, we need people like you inside. Yeah. And that made her say, okay, let me consider it. She said she still wasn't. Then they came back to her. 
Then yeah. they came back to her again, and then they finally convinced her. So that's what I want to understand from you. Like, it's one thing to write a book, but that still doesn't say after I write this book, I'm running for office. No. It is a huge undertaking. So it's that's why I'm just curious to hear that. What what did make you say? I wrote those books, and while I was writing those books, I was also very involved in political activism mm-hmm. and nonprofit work. This was a trajectory that went over years and years and years. And then I did run for Congress. So once again, it was a gradual everything moving into everything, moving into everything. In terms of the presidency, a presidential campaign is a platform for the national conversation that matters. And you Mm -hmm. get to introduce things into the conversation. And by introducing things into the conversation, you expand political possibilities and you expand. I think what's happened in our country is that we've been trained to limit our political imaginations. Absolutely. And I, you know, and I've written a couple of political books, but I realized the people are not the problem. If you look at issue after issue, if you actually look at the polls, the American people are a little left of center. The American, we're just lifting the consciousness of America. The people are not the problem. The problem is the political system itself And how at this point it's baked into the cake, a certain level of economic and political and social and racial injustice is baked into the cake. And a presidential campaign is a place where you get to call that system on its malfeasance. How then, when it's so baked into the cake, how then do you remain outside of that in order to, I guess, get a slice of the pie, so to speak? I'm not sure I understand the question. Well, okay. If the presidency exists within this cake that is built with corruption and malfeasance, as you said, right? And you're identifying yourself as a candidate who is outside of that, who's like, I don't believe in this. I don't agree with this. I have written books about the ways in which this is corrupt. I have also acknowledged that reparations is a reparative measure that this country needs to take, not only fiscally, but culturally, right? You've stated these things. But how then, if it is so baked into the 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 inner workings of this space how do then you as a president come into this space and get things done if the space is already riddled with all of this corruption well i would not have a magic wand the president does not have a magic wand i wouldn't get everything i wanted nor nor you know you you don't want the president to have a magic wand because you know we do have three co-equal branches of government yeah but one of which is things, inherently completely corrupt at this point. Well, yes. In terms of how it operates, you're right. But there would be something very profound about a president who said that while there. That's what Franklin Roosevelt did. I mean, Franklin Roosevelt was not perfect. God knows he wasn't perfect regarding the Jews. He wasn't perfect regarding black people, etc. But when it came to calling what he called the economic royalists on what they were doing to this country, the man was profound. And we haven't had a president since him to really name it the way it needs to be named. And I also think, and first of all, the president has the bully pulpit. The president has the power of executive orders. Okay. And also, I think that if we get to the point where the public imagination would be expanded enough to vote for me, I think that would mean the public imagination was also expanded enough to vote for some more progressive senatorial and congressional candidates, which would absolutely be necessary in order for the kind of legislative shifts to happen that are necessary. I mean, right now you're polling at like 9%. What are the efforts that are being done 
outside of, you know, being on cool podcasts like this yeah. to well, garner a support around those yeah. types of shifts of change of, of thinking? Yeah. Well, first of all, podcasts like yours are a big deal because the answer is you talk to the people. As far as the 9%, and in some, even one that came out today, 11%, that's higher than either Barack Obama or Bernie Sanders were at this point. So there's a lot of rumbling going on in this country. You know, I know that the DNC and the corporate elite within the Democratic Party is trying to keep a lid on that. No, 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 we're not going to have any of that. But you can just kind of feel the energy of people Mm -hmm. going, you know what, we should decide. And I think a lot of people are saying right now, wait a minute, let us hear what she has to say. Let us hear what another opponent has to say. Let there be debates. That's democracy. And, you know, it's what you can control in life and what you can't control. I can't control what the DNC does. I can't control whether or not the American people are being provided an option of a certain kind of economic, social, and political change that a Williamson presidency would represent. Then if the people show up to support that and say, yeah, I think that candidate should be heard, they will support the campaign. And then if I present an option that voters say, we want that one, then you win. That's what a democracy is. It should be decided by the will of the people. What do you feel is the president's role? There's been so much conversation in the past few years just about how I think a lot of people are reimagining what the actual role of the presidency is as people get a lot more aware of local politics, right, of our senators and of our you know, representatives and how they operate. What do you feel the president's role at this point is? You know, Franklin Roosevelt said that the primary job of the presidency is not administrative. He said the primary job of the president is moral leadership. The way I look at the U.S. government, Washington is filled with a lot of political car mechanics. And some of them are good political car mechanics. But that's not the problem. The problem is we're on the wrong road. We don't need another technician. Specifically, you hire technicians. They work for you and your administration and so forth. We need a visionary. We need somebody to remind people what our mission statement, what does all men are created equal mean? And what has been our history in relationship to that? What does God gave inalienable rights of life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness mean? And what is our history relationship to that? What does government or instituted to secure those rights? Where has our government done that? Where has our government not done that? And where are we doing it and not doing it now? And what does it mean in the Declaration of Independence that if the government is not doing that, the people can alter it or abolish it? I want to bring the big picture to people. And within that big picture, those external changes can be made. But, you know, Martin Luther King said, well, two things that remind me of this. He said, we need quantitative shifts in our circumstances and qualitative shifts in our souls. And I think the role of the presidency today, particularly in the 21st century, has to be to address the internal as well as the external dynamics. And he also said, he said, the desegregation of the American South is the externalization of the goal of the civil rights movement. But the ultimate goal is the establishment of the beloved community. And I think that's what we need in the president in 21st century, a person who is not just speaking from the issue of transactional politics. That's very 20th century mechanistic. You can't fight off fascism and and white supremacy and all those horrifying, malevolent forces of human consciousness only 
with talk about a particular policy change. You also have to talk about what is it in our hearts that even takes us to the point where we would acquiesce to that policy change. Mm -hmm. And what are the changes in our character that are going to be necessary for us to rise up and repudiate those policies that we do not like? A president who is conversant in both the external and outer dynamics, that's what we need in the 21st century and particularly what we need right now. McDonald's is not new to chicken. So maybe stop questioning that chicken cred and get your hands on the McCrispy. Juicy fried chicken, buttery bun, unmatched pickle to chicken ratio. Yeah, they know what they're doing. In fact, we can honestly say they're not new to chicken. They're true to chicken. The McCrispy. Only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. I think the thing that gives me pause is, you know, I've heard you make the car mechanic, you know, metaphor before. And what I really want to hear, honestly, Marianne, is what do you feel? Okay, actually, I'll ask you this. Do you consider yourself a politician? Well, at this point, I'm running for president. So it would be disingenuous for me to say I'm not. I mean, I'm running for president. So I'll press you on that. And this is why. In my opinion, I feel like what happened is we have a nation that is now run by politicians versus public servants. So we, at one point, I think a lot of us felt like we were electing people that were serving on our behalf, right? Uh -huh. And so it was clear in their job title as a public servant that they are serving on the behalf of the public that elected them. Somehow uh -huh. over time, though, this uh -huh. became bastardized into this title of politician, which is actually Absolutely. not about serving the people, but it's actually Absolutely. about being political, right? Doing a dance of verbiage, of litigation, of lobbying, et cetera. It's very much corporate bullshit, right? It's just a different name for the corporate bullshit that we see in corporations, the per my previous email behavior. So for me, like, and this is, I'm not talking about y'all who is listening. I'm not talking, I'm just talking as Amanda Seals, getting the opportunity to speak to somebody who, who is vying for this role. I am looking for somebody to actively say, I'm not only just talking about the system being wrong, I am also saying that I do not want to represent that system. And thus, I cannot even name myself in the same way that the system is naming itself because that inherently is reductive of my role. And so when I hear people say and identify themselves as politicians, what I also see people doing is they get passes, right? When people say things in these political roles that are completely disingenuous, a lot of folks will come to the defense and say, well, they're a politician. What do you expect them to do? Now, one thing I loved about when I heard some of your interviews is you were like, well, I don't have to do that. I'm not going to just say the nice thing. I'm not going to just do the thing that people want me to do because I'm a politician. So what I want to hear is even if you are saying, OK, I'm running for president, so I have to own that. What is the different way that you are existing as a politician to debunk or to remove those guardrails and those protective bumpers that so many politicians get to exist within while not serving their constituency. 
I'm not of that system. And I'm saying a lot of things already that you're not supposed to say. I'm saying a lot of things politicians aren't supposed to say. I'm saying things which if you want to worry about whether or not I'll get the next political committee assignment, whether or not the DNC will support me in my next primary, I'm saying all kinds of things that you that they don't do yeah. because they're within that system. That's why I'm northern. I don't think the status quo will disrupt itself. I think it will take somebody who's not of that system. They would argue that only someone whose career is entrenched in the car that drove us into this ditch should be considered qualified to lead us out of the ditch. I reject that. My my qualification is not that I know how to perpetuate that system. For all the reasons that you said, I'm not of that system. My qualification is that I believe I can help disrupt that system. And that's what I believe my candidacy represents is a disruption of that system. So you talked a lot about what you say. What do you feel like you have done aside from writing books? Because I know that you've written books and then you've also done a lot in the nonprofit space around, you know, like uh, Project Angel Food. My next door neighbor actually volunteers with Project Angel Food. What, if you wouldn't mind sharing with us, like what are some other ways you feel like in terms of tactical, practical application, you feel like you have gained experience that is applicable to this position? I have not only worked on the issue of being there for people, such as you mentioned, people with AIDS and cancer and other life-challenging illnesses. I've also supported the establishment of Department of Peace, including an organization called the Peace Alliance. And I've worked up close and personal with people in their lives, in their most desperate times, not only as an activist, but as a personal counselor in ways that has given me a deep insight into the suffering going on in this country. And I believe that people in Washington are, in too many cases, buffered. They're buffered emotionally Absolutely. from the ravages that a vast majority of American people are going through on a daily basis. Yes, Our economy works for 20% of Americans. And if you're within that 20%, it's like being on an economic island and you don't necessarily see what's going on in the sea that surrounds the island. That sea is filled with deep despair. And we cannot, you know, people talk about the mental health crisis, but we Far too often, the official narrative completely underestimates, won't even acknowledge the important role that economic anxiety plays in so much of that mental health crisis. In the 1970s, we had a thriving middle class in this country and many millions of people who could not now could then afford homes, afford a car, afford a yearly vacation, could afford to send their kids to college. What I have done is I've been up close and personal with enough people to see the ravages that good people doing their best, working hard, trying to raise their kids well, and the system is against them. And my job and my experience has not only led me to that, but also because of other aspects of where my professional trajectory has taken me. I've seen how the very, very rich and powerful live in this country. Now, I'm not talking about nice people versus not nice people. That's not what this is about at all. But I have been up close and personal enough to see this is rigged. This is wrong. And I've also traveled in other countries enough to say, well, they have universal health care. They have free college and tech school. They have free child care. They have paid family leave. They have guaranteed sick pay. They have guaranteed living wage. 
And it has made me into a woman, and I think I have proven this with my professional as well as my personal activity, unwilling to be quiet about that. And that's exactly what I'm doing with this candidacy. I'm saying it. It's not the way it is because the situation is complicated the way they would have you believe. It's the way it is because the situation is corrupt. You know, what I hate to do is make you feel like you're in a gotcha moment. But I think for a lot of us, it's like you're saying all the things that we want to hear, right? Like we want to hear that reparations is on the top of the list. We want to hear that free uh, universal health care is on the top of the list. We want to hear all of these things because, frankly, you're correct. I mean, you're living here in the same nation we are. We can all look around when we're not in the protected 20% bubble and see that this is disparity and it is disparaging our, our nation in great swaths. Even the people who are voting against their own interests, they are a part of that number, right? But I think what we're lacking in the assertion of these things is where and how they practically can happen. Because I know that I'm looking at the groundswell of fascism in this nation and I'm trying to figure out how does this get beat back? Like in a real way, because before we can even get to all of these things that you're saying absolutely need to happen, we have to beat back this movement that has a lot of momentum. Neo-fascist threat. Okay, so once again, quoting Roosevelt, Roosevelt said we wouldn't have to worry about a fascist takeover in this country as long as democracy delivers on its promises. So to me, the neo-fascist threat is the disease, Mm -hmm. but neoliberal trickle-down economics has eroded our immune system because it's made people live with such anxiety, people don't even have the bandwidth in too many cases for the kind of civic involvement that you were talking about. Can you just really quickly for people just simplify, just uh, actualize neoliberal economics? Like what does that, because that's a very top line term. What does that actually look like? What it means is that you see corporate profits rather than humanitarian values as your governing principle. Yep. Agreed. So that public policy looks at serving the profit maximization of huge corporate entities yeah. before the health, safety, and welfare of the people. Facts. Okay. So I believe the best way to fight off a threat to democracy is to build up people's lives. That's what we have to do first, build up the immune system. Because if you look, look at 2016, okay, look at 2016. There were two candidates who said to the American people, your rage is legitimate. Your pain is valid. The system is rigged against you. You're right. Two candidates said that, Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders meant it, and he would have done something about it. Donald Trump realized, oh, that's the way to close the deal. Oh, he meant what he said. He was just talking to some other people. But he meant what he said. You're raised. Yeah, I see what you're saying. <laughs> so the, yeah, really, I hear what you're saying. So the point is that rage, a lot of times when people say to me, Marianne, you have to be quiet now. We have to just make sure it's Joe Biden. Don't you understand the fascists are at the door? A lot of times I'll say to my friends who say that, number one, yes, I understand the fascists are at the door. Otherwise, I wouldn't be running. I don't believe that the agenda that Joe Biden is offering to the American people would beat them. 
And number two, I say to those people, let me guess, you have health care, don't you? You have adequate health care. You can afford to send your kids to college, don't you? When you talked about a privileged position, I believe that a lot of people that I know who only want to talk about the fascist threat, but don't want to talk about one in four Americans living with medical debt. Well, a third I think of all our that has to do with the fascist threats. I mean, I, I consider all of those things to be amidst the fascist threats. That's the thing. Like, I think that in their fascism, it is control, right? And so in their control, they are minimalizing the importance of these things for, for the regular people. Well, wait a minute. You're giving a pass to Democratic presidents that they don't deserve. The Democrats have had the White House for a lot of years Facts. Uh, in the over the left who did not pass universal health care, would not even uh, allow for the public option, who did not allow for free college and tech school. I, I don't think, and I say this as someone who's running for the Democratic Party, the Democratic Party also has to look in the mirror. Definitely. And it, the Democratic Party has not provided the Democratic Party, the corporatist Democrats that are formed the elite of the corporate Democrats give a little bit. It's like they want to help people on the periphery, but they won't challenge the underlying corporate forces that make the return of all those people suffering inevitable. And that's what this current president offers is these incremental changes. But he doesn't offer the kind of fundamental economic reform that would seriously remove so much of the suffering of the majority of American people. But I feel like you offer a lot of really beautifully worded language that doesn't actually present this is what I am going to do and this is how I'm going to get it done. Well, I, don't, I think I, I don't do. know that. I mean, I, I, I feel like that's ask what me, I'm listening ask me. to. I mean, I just asked goes, you, how would you, I just asked you, how do we challenge fascism <laughs> and, that is growing in such a rapid rate? And I feel okay. like I didn't get a legitimate, this is how I feel like we can do this. The reason I'm pressing you on this is because this is where a lot of people are really trying to figure out what do I do? I don't even just mean for you. I mean, I feel like a lot of us in this country are like, we feel like our hands are tied. We feel like we really don't know what to do because it feels like the strategy has been in place for so long and we're just like now waking up to it. So I think what we what I'm curious to hear from you is like, okay, this is this is where I see my role in that. And this is how I see actually doing it. I feel the fact that Democrats have not given people enough over the last few years has helped pave the way Facts. to the rise of neo-fascism. Yes. Large groups of desperate people become a kind of petri dish out of which all kinds of personal political dysfunction almost inevitably arises. What I'm saying is that President Biden is offering to the American people as an alternative to fascism, whether it's from DeSantis, who is an outright fascist, actually. Absolutely. Or Trump, who's definitely leaning in that way. He is offering incremental change. He's saying basically the economy is doing pretty good, but he's saying basically the economy is doing good when that is contrary to the visceral experience of the majority of Americans. What I'm saying to the American people is the system is not delivering to you what you deserve in the richest country in the world and what a government of the people, by the people, and for the people would deliver to its people because the government has become of the corporations, by the corporations, and for the corporations. Namely, those issues that represent genuine reform, such as universal health care, free college and tech school, paid family leave, childcare, 
living wage and so forth. Now, how would I do it? This is where the levers of the presidency come in. You and I have already talked about the fact that, you know, it's a co-equal branch of government. So obviously, whoever is the president, you hope for a Congress and, you know, Senate and House is going to work with you. But you still have executive orders that you could do. You still have the bully pulpit. I'll give you an example. So the president said that he was going to raise the minimum wage. So the president got into the White House and he did raise the minimum wage for federal workers. When it came to putting it into a bill, the parliamentarian said no. Wake up call, memo to Democrats, the parliamentarian has no political power. I cannot even imagine the Republicans letting the parliamentarian stop them. He didn't choose to push it. The Democrats also said, oh, we have cut child poverty in half, which they did. Although, number one, if you could cut it in half, you could eradicate it. Number two, they cut it in half with the child tax credit. Excellent. The point is, six months later, it expired and they didn't permanentize it. This was when there was a Democratic House, Senate and White House. This is when they could have codified abortion rights. This is when they could have codified voting rights. This is when they could have stood up on police reform. This is when they could have done things that, oh, they just don't quite get to. Or this president, for example, who has said climate change is an existential crisis, right? And he's saying we have provided more investment in green energy than any president before in our Inflation Reduction Act. Well, yeah, he did. But you know what? He also approved the Willow Project, the $8 billion ConocoPhillips project, which will completely nullify that. He has approved um, the exportation of liquefied natural gas, and he has given more oil drilling permits than even Trump did. Those are all things where the power of the president to have made a difference. He's also said he will not even mention the public option. And he said that he would veto a Medicare for all bill if they came to his desk. Those are examples where my behavior would simply be the opposite. Got you. McDonald's is not new to chicken. So maybe stop questioning that chicken cred and get your hands on the McCrispy. Juicy fried chicken, buttery bun, unmatched pickle to chicken ratio. Yeah, they know what they're doing. In fact, we can honestly say they're not new to chicken. They're true to chicken. The McCrispy. Only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. What do you feel is the reason why? I mean, I know you mentioned you you know there's a neoliberal corporatism that is involved in the Democratic Party and I agree. What do you feel like is the benefit then of aligning yourself with that party? Well, that's, you know, I think I have what a lot of people have, some nostalgia for a time when the Democratic Party did behave in a way of unequivocal advocacy for the working people of the United States. You mentioned Cory Bush, the squad. I mean, there are people still within that party yeah. working hard to have the Democratic Party see be what traditionally it has been. And the reality in America is, well, there are two things I want to say to this. First of all, 
Traditionally, third parties have been very important. Abolition came from the abolitionist party. Women's suffrage came from the women's party. Social security came from the socialist party. Mm-hmm. But in terms of actually winning the presidency, particularly now, the Democrats and the Republicans, to be honest, over the last few years, have formed a kind of unholy alliance that makes it very difficult for someone who is not in the two parties to make a difference. I mean, it's very difficult to raise money against that behemoth machine as it is. If you're a third party, it's almost impossible at this time. You know, the issue is, and I think a lot of people are thinking about this now, is political parties, period. You know, George Washington warned us against them, said that it would make people more concerned about their faction than their country. And you see this all over the place right now. I mean, I think, you know, for what it's worth, there's a lot of us who are really just understanding that, not just now understanding, but there's a lot of us who just really feel like the ideology of this country is very different than the reality of this country. It is at this at this point in our history. Absolutely. Always. Always. As yeah, a black always, person, but every I ge- can absolutely say yeah, that. <laughs> no, absolutely. But I think every generation lives out its iteration of that dichotomy between enlightened principles and how we actually behave. I mean, you had 41 signers of the Declaration of Independence, 56 signers, 41 of them were slave owners. Thank you. So that dichotomy between who we are and who we say we are has always been there. Right. And in my opinion, our generation is living out just the latest iteration of that bipolarity. People who say, yeah, let's live what we say we are versus people who, for their own economic and ideological reasons, have absolutely no intention of seeing that happen. And every generation pushes back more or pushes back less. And that's really, I think, where we are as a generation deciding, are we going to push back against that as others have with abolition, with women's suffrage, with the labor movement, with the civil rights movement and so forth? Because that's what it will take. We have to rise up the way our ancestors have risen up and push it back. And it's not easy in our time, just as it wasn't easy in other people's time, but they did it. And I think that we can too. I think a lot of people I hear say things like, oh, you know, the system was created by our forefathers. You know, they knew what they were doing. They made this incredible system that we still live with. It corrects itself. What is your view of that? Do you feel like the Constitution and the system, the three branches of government system, do you feel like you have a lot of, you know, faith in this? Where do you stand on that? It does not correct itself. When it has been corrected, it's been corrected by people who gave their blood, who gave their lives, who sacrificed in ways that, I mean, hello, abolitionists, women's suffragists, labor movement, civil rights movement. That was not the system correcting itself. The system allowed for that correction. And that's what's so dangerous about this time is they're trying to diminish our ability to even do it, which is why this is a, such an urgent moment. This goes back to this neo-fascist threat, because if we left them in this time, I mean, these people want to shut out the possibilities of that correction. No, the situation does not correct itself. Our ancestors corrected it. And we need to not be as precious as sometimes people are. You know, people sometimes I hear people say, well, I'm just so traumatized by all this. And I always respond by saying, don't you think the people who walked across the bridge at Selma were traumatized? Hello, but they walked. And I think we all need to toughen up a bit and know that it's our turn. The system will not correct itself, but it will be corrected if we correct it. I think there's folks who, you know, feel like you have in the past been ableist or, you know, questioning of science. I'm curious as somebody who is very grounded in the need for universal health care, 
Where do you feel like wellness lines up or does it at all with Western science and Western medicine? I don't think I've ever been ableist and I don't think I've ever been anti-science. You know, the president of the United States is a Catholic and he stood up, what, thousands of times in church and said that he believes in the virgin birth. Does anybody really think he doesn't understand where babies come from? Is anybody going to say that because he believes in the virgin birth in church that he doesn't believe in science? I've never not believed in science. And my behavior and my experience has demonstrated that I believe in science. I've never, it's simply a false narrative and a smear and a mischaracterization. Well, then let's not spend time on it. Where do you feel like wellness? Because you are somebody, I mean, I read the book. You know, I was going through a bad breakup and they were like, you need to read Return to Love from Marianne Williamson. I mean, literally even (laughs) it was actually like a bizarre thing when I was beginning this research because all I kept hearing was the audio (laughs) book. Like all I kept hearing was your voice in the audio book in the interviews. But where do you feel like the intersection? Because I will tell you a lot of people that I speak to not only want to have access to better health care, like in terms of financially, right? But they want access to better health care in terms of just what we consider to be health care. So yeah. beyond just, you know, women's reproductive health care with Roe v. Wade, but also, you know, wellness as it exists beyond simply just pills and scalpels. Right. Well, I hope that, pe- you know, one of the things I said, it was rather well known for saying in the last debate was that we have a sickness care yeah. system, not a health care system. And in my whole health plan, which is on my website at Marion 2024, you will see exactly what you were speaking to. First of all, if you talk about my not believing in science, I'm the one standing for Medicare for all. So obviously I'm the one who believes in Western healthcare. However, I talk in my plan and I talk to now. We can't just treat sickness. We have to discuss all the ways in which policy after policy contributes to making people sick. We have to ask ourselves, why is it that we have more chronic disease than those in people in other nations? We have to talk about the, our environmental policies, particularly our sacrifice zones, where people who are disadvantaged particularly have factories just spewing toxins because those people are less advantaged, so they will not be able to fight back. We have to talk about the carcinogens in our food, the toxins in our water. And we have to talk about the fact that we have to, with our food policies, with our agricultural policies, our environmental policies, our chemical policies, be far more stringent against what we know, what we know are known carcinogens and known other environmental toxins that that contribute to making people sick. I believe in an integrative approach to healing the body, and I believe in an integrative approach to a healing society. You know, in the old days, people didn't take care of their bodies. They didn't take care of their health. They didn't take care of their exercise and lifestyle. And then if sickness arose, they would just seek to eradicate or or suppress the symptom called allopathic medicine. But decades ago, we realized, no, you have to proactively create health. And that's what I believe. I believe we we have to proactively create the conditions of peace, proactively create the conditions of health. Not just wait until problems arise and then seek through force uh, to eradicate the symptoms. And that goes back to what you were saying of a president in the 21st century. We need a president who gets all those integrative dynamics and doesn't just treat the symptoms of anything. The symptoms are overwhelming us because we're not dealing with them on the level of cause. McDonald's is not new to chicken. So maybe stop questioning that chicken cred and get your hands on the McCrispy. Juicy fried chicken, buttery bun, unmatched pickle to chicken ratio. 
Yeah, they know what they're doing. In fact, we can honestly say they're not new to chicken. They're true to chicken. The McCrispy. Only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. So the questions I'm asking now are from viewers who are like, we have questions! And you have spoken about this, but for the sake of the people here, you speak a lot about reparations, about the validity for reparations. The person asked, what do you see as a realistic pathway to getting reparations accomplished? I also want to add to that, what do you feel is the sticking point that continues to impede upon that. I know Cori Bush just, you know, brought to the floor a reparations bill. And I can tell you a lot of us, you know, my very good friend Charlemagne, we're all like, that ain't going to go through, you know, because you're like, we know where we are. But you seem to have a mindset around this that I think a lot of us haven't heard other politicians, particularly white politicians, stand on. So where do you feel like the path is to getting this across the bridge? When I have spoken, first of all, my whole position on reparations came from the stuff I was talking to you about earlier, about taking this sort of spiritual lens and applying it to our society's healing. And it is a spiritual principle that you cannot have the future you want until and unless you clean up the past. Whether it's a Catholic going to confession or a Jew on Yom Kippur or an AA meeting where you admit the exact nature of your character defect. That's where I'm coming from. It's that foundational flaw that you were talking about. We have to deal with it. I want this country to repair itself. I want to reset and I want a new beginning. We can't have it until we are willing to look in the mirror and clean up some things from the past. That's where I'm mainly coming from. Now, this has been my experience. And I know a lot of people might be surprised to hear this, but I'm telling you the truth. I have spoken to all white audiences in states like New Hampshire, Iowa, Nebraska. So I walk into the room. They're listening to me. And then the word reparations comes up and I watch people's body language. Right. And it's kind of like, you know, I've heard this about her. And then I go into this like 10 minute 101A explanation. And it's like people either never knew this, never learned it, never wanted it, whatever it was. And I say, you know, the first ships, slave ships came over here in 1690. And then I talk about it and I talk about the cotton trade and I talk about enslaved people. And I talk about at the end of the Civil War, there would be four and five million enslaved people and how Tecumseh Sherman had promised 40 acres and a mule about what happened after Reconstruction, about another hundred years of um, uh, suppression of black people, mm-hmm. the black code laws, segregation, et cetera. I talk about how Germany paid $89 billion of reparations to Jewish people after World War II, because by the middle of the 20th century, we understood that if one people wronged a people, that financial remuneration was simply what you did. And I have watched people who started out like this and then start leaning forward at the end, giving a standing ovation, yelling, yeah, we got to do this reparations thing. (laughs) It's called leadership. It's called a president who doesn't just follow the crowd and do a focus group on what people want, but says, (laughs) this is the right thing to do. Now, this is the thing. If we got to the point 
where people were actually electing me president, then that would mean, yeah, we get that about her and I'm voting for her. <laughs> so it would be understood that one of my first things is I'm calling up some people and we're going to go to Camp David for a weekend and we're going to start laying out a plan, put it on the table. And the American people would expect that because that's they knew that they were voting for that. I'm not I'm not covert about it at all. Do you think white people should be featured on ads for Juneteenth events? No, they should not be. No, they should not be. No, they should not be. Why? And I saw somebody, why? Because it's, right? And I saw somebody saying, oh, to make it inclusive. That is such a mind, you know what? No, Juneteenth should be about Black people. Just like the Holocaust days would be about Jewish people. Can we get real here? Can you do the electric slide? (laughs) No, (laughs) no. Mary Ann, if you're trying to get black people to vote for you, you're going to have to come to our events. And if you're going to come to our events and that's and you know what, to be honest, you know, I think I think there's something to be said for, you know, I I heard when you were on The Breakfast Club and uh, Teslin was asking about, you know, just like your involvement in reparations task forces like the one in California. And I think for a lot of us, there's this feeling that, you know, you say these these things that we want to hear, we want to hear. But there hasn't been enough, I think examples of seeing you like in the mix well, and I don't know. even if they and even and listen it's not to say that that hasn't happened i think there hasn't been enough yeah. optics or enough visuals for enough yeah. people to feel yeah. that right yeah I and so yeah, that's well, and you know and podcasts are an element of it but the role is so multi-layered and so multifaceted and we are at a time where the shift is not just coming in the thinking, the shift is coming in how the thing looks right yeah how our presidents show up well, I agree with that, but I've showed up plenty. I wrote in 1998 a book about reparations. I have several Don't books nobody want to keep about- hearing about this book. I, I need to just tell you this no, now. I, Black people that. do well, not no. want to keep hearing about you writing a book about reparations. I want you to know no. this because nobody's going to well, tell you this for real. And I'm going to just tell I you it for real now. To what they Black don't want to hear it. Want. You wrote a book and that's to- great. They want to hear you being you- in the ground with the people who are actually making it happen. That's what they want to well, hear. I, I would... I'm telling well, you. Well, do I get to respond? Do I get to respond? You do, but you was talking when I was talking. So I'm telling you, like people don't want to keep hearing you say I wrote a book. Anyone well, can write I a book. Argue. No, I disagree with that. Not you uh, can. You can self-publish. Would... People writing books all day. Oh, <laughs> unfortunately, and they're banning books all day. Actually, unfortunately. But go ahead. I believe that the work I've done, including eight years that I lived in Detroit, the racial healing circles, and so forth. I believe that things that I have said publicly and been involved with in my activism has actually helped broaden the conversation, the public conversation in this country. I've lived in Washington, D.C. for two years. I don't think that my going out to Sacramento as a person not even living in California to make a statement would have been the correct thing to do. Oh, not to I believe that I've done plenty. And whether it has to, to help create that conversation, including the fact that I spoke about it on the Democratic debate stage in 2020. And because I did that, every other candidate was asked about it and had to name it. I believe that I have done what I could to contribute to the conversation. And I believe that those things are very much on the ground. I hear you. But as someone who would be voting for you, I am telling you Mm -hmm. directly, face to face, that we want to see involvement in other ways that are outside of simply your own agenda, right? Simply your own direction. What would you have me do? I'm just trying to tell you you as someone who is a, I'm somebody, I'm the people. Mm -hmm. I'm the people. 
I'm That's trying to tell I. you something for real right now. I'm the people. I hear you. It sounds, I, I am very, it sounds very ivory tower. It sounds very ivory tower. And it doesn't mean go and speak. It means go and listen. That's what, it, that's what we're trying to say. Go be in the mix and listen. Because oftentimes what allies do is they go and they have all the knowledge and they do have all the facts and they did learn all the things and they do represent from their heart. But they end up talking over the people who are there doing the work, right? And so most times it's just as effective to see the ally there in support, particularly as a white woman with money and power, right? They're in support and saying, not only do I do this on my own time, I'm taking my own time to come and support what you all are doing, because what you're doing in California is a benchmark and a actual example that can be replicated in these other states. So, you know, I hear you, but I want you to hear me because it's not trying to come at you for you to defend. It's just trying to enlighten for you this other example of the ways in which you can be representative that may not have been considered. All right, y'all, let's head on over to Patreon at The Amandaverse. Now, Ms. Marianne Williamson has a very famous quote that a lot of us have said for a long time, probably not even knowing it was hers. But I want to get her thoughts on some other famous quotes that we've been saying for a long time. And you're also going to get my thoughts on this interview. All that's happening at Patreon, TheAmandaverse.com, right now. All right, y'all. I hope you enjoyed that Patreon segment. If you didn't go over there to TheMeandiverse.com, you missed out. But you still got time, so go over there. All right, now we back. The Last Dose. I really do appreciate, regardless of what the outcome is, one of the first things you said at the beginning of this interview, which is something you've been saying and which is actually facts, is that if the things that need to be said aren't even brought into the conversation, then they'll never be even considered to being actually put into actualization. And I need to write that down. And being on this level of a stage is an incredible feat. And you've now done it multiple times. So I applaud you for that and for taking up the mantle and again, inserting into the conversation these realities that a lot of folks feel like are simply improbable. People think reparations is improbable. They think universal health care is improbable. It doesn't matter how many examples we see in other nations. They think gun control is improbable, all these things, because they think that it is not the culture of America. But I do agree with you, and I stand with you in the assertion that uh, the culture of America needs to change. And the culture of America needs to be more about Americans <laughs> and not about, I guess we can call them Benjamins, a.k.a. Zalas and Sense. So thank you again. And uh, thank you to your team for reaching out to us and uh, for bringing you into this space. And I wish you the best on this path and on this journey. It is thank a juicy. And I know a lot of us are at the very least really happy to see a woman in the mix and, you know, chin held high and saying the things that need to get said. I think the point for me, you know, is that the moment is so urgent. Yes. If it's going to happen, we have to like make it happen at this point. It can't, if all we do is talk about it and have it in the conversation, then America will go down. Baby, we going down. So well, we then got, let's we we got, lift it back up. Then let's lift it back up. Let's lift Thank it back up. Thank you so much for Thank having you. me on. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Have a good one. Oh, my best. God bless. Bye. <laughs> 